Welcome to Heart of the Father Ministries and the preaching and teaching ministry of Dr. David Nichols. Our prayer for you is that this message will pierce your heart and raise you into your place of destiny in Jesus Christ. The title of this message tonight is The Prodigals Are Coming Home. I want you to tell that title to your neighbor there. Tell them, the prodigals are coming home. Go ahead, tell your neighbor. Hallelujah. Warn them. <clears throat> They're coming. I want to read in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. My friends, when the prophet Malachi uttered these words, and the people of Israel heard him, they weren't all sitting around saying, oh, it's such a nice family prophecy. He's talking about fathers, he's talking about children. People weren't doing that when they heard Malachi utter this prophecy. People were saying, Prophet, what in the world are you saying? You're talking about fathers having their hearts turned to their children first, and then the children's hearts are going to be turned? You got it backwards, Prophet. People probably were thinking out of the book of Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're pretty strict laws in there for children, aren't they? There are places in those books where you can look according to the law of Moses. If you have a rebellious son, a rebellious daughter, and you follow a certain prescribed uh, course of action that is given in those verses, it can escalate to the point where you take your son or your daughter outside the city walls and you have them stoned to death with stones. How many of you wouldn't be here tonight if we were still under the law? Okay, go ahead. I wouldn't. I'm raising my hand. All right, We've got a few here that being honest with us tonight. All right, there's a few of us that wouldn't be here if the law was still the way we were, we were doing it, okay? I'm glad for the gospel tonight. How about you? That's what I'm going to preach to you tonight is the gospel. So the people are saying, Prophet, these rebellious kids, they're the problem. And already in the Old Testament, Malachi, by the revelation of God, was foreseeing the way the gospel was going to go with this. And he said the father's hearts are going to be turned to the children and then the children's hearts are going to be turned to the fathers. Whoa, people said this is a hard message. And you know that over 300 years later, John the Baptist came. He was the fulfillment of many parts of this prophecy. But the ultimate turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children, friends, was done by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so glad that John the Baptist came and pointed him out and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John began preaching a message of righteousness and he required people to repent and be baptized in water so that their sins could be remitted. But my friend, it is in the ministry of Jesus. It is in the presentation by Jesus of who Father God is. It is a message that you only see in parts and pieces in the Old Testament. We had to have someone come down here in person. We had to have someone come out of heaven, someone who actually was God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, and become a man here on this earth. And that's what Jesus did. And friend, when we see him that way, we see who Father really is. And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15 with me, please. We're going to read some parts of the parable of the prodigal son. Because what John the Baptist started in turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, Jesus took to the highest level. And that's the level that we want to be at tonight. I believe God is going to take us there. In Luke uh, chapter 15... 
In verse 11, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. He says this in verse 11, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Do you know what the people who were listening to this story when Jesus first told it, do you know what they were saying to one another right now at this early point in the story? You know, we're all saying, oh, it's going to be a nice family story. We're going to learn about love. We're going to learn about forgiveness. And it's going to be good. That's what we're all saying. Those people weren't saying that. They were saying, this story is weird, Jesus. When you have a father that has two sons, we don't know what happened to the mother. The story doesn't tell us. She probably died. And, and the father is a widower with his two sons living on the place. And the younger one comes and says, give me half of the goods. That's not the way the Old Testament works it. I mean, that's greedy. <laughs> the older son is supposed to get a double portion, which means he gets two-thirds of the stuff, and the younger son gets one-third if there's two of them. But the younger comes, son comes, and the father gives him half of the stuff that people are going, Jesus, this story is weird. And so Jesus goes on. He's got their attention, you can bet. He says, not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And the crowd is saying, uh-huh, I knew it, that younger son. He just wanted that big wad of money from his dad so he could go out and party. Mm-hmm. Verse 14. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now when the crowd heard that in this story, they had one word that they were saying. You know what it was? Giros. Let's all do a big giros here. Now come on, let's get some audience participation. You ready for a big one all together? Giros. That was pretty good, but let's do a real one here. You guys ready? Here we go. Giros. There you go. Now you're being good Jews sitting listening to Jesus talk about pigs. Okay, remember from the law of Moses, pigs are not, not where you want to be. So, this boy winds up feeding the pigs. Not only is he feeding them, verse 16 says, he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. These Jews that are listening to Jesus are going, <laughs> and they weren't shaken under the power of God. They were, they were just being grossed out in this story. But look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now I've got to tell you something about this parable of the prodigal son. Jesus has already assumed the reality of Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, that was ministered by the life of John the Baptist in his preaching ministry, and Jesus had already ministered much on it himself. This father's heart had been turned to his sons, both of them, not just one. And that's all assumed in this story. That happened first. And now look what happens. This son's heart, as he's out in the pig pen his heart strangely gets turned to his father. That's just what Malachi prophesied almost 400 years earlier than this. Isn't that amazing? Now Jesus is telling this story. Jesus is really fleshing it out in a way that we can understand it with details. The son says, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Man, that sounds like true repentance to me. Now, as the crowd is listening to this story, they're saying, well, that's quite a change of heart in this son. And here's what they were saying amongst themselves. 
Think, boy, when this son gets back, he better be groveling. He better be crawling down that driveway. When he gets to that door, he better slide in. He better grab his dad's feet and plead for mercy. That's what the crowd was saying. They were very familiar with the law of Moses. (laughs) This boy could be stoned. That's what the law of Moses prescribed. But what does verse 20 say? And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Instead of the son coming, crawling, groveling, the father's running to him. The crowd is saying, this is too strange. Jesus, what are you telling here? Jesus, I'm just telling you right out of the relationship I have with my father and how that all works, how it's supposed to work with you guys in broken relationships down here on this earth. And people are like, whoa, this is amazing. The father would run to this son who's spent half of his stuff. He's taken half of the farm and he's just blowing it. And father's running to him. That's way out there. The son said to him, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Now how many of us fathers, you know, when the son says that, how many of us want to say, there's still a voice in the back of my mind saying, Yeah, son, I know. You know, you were a bad boy. <laughs> and I, I, say some more of that to me. I want to hear some more of that. <laughs> uh, fathers, come on, be honest with me here tonight. <laughs> There's some of that in all of us. But you know what? The father in the story didn't do any of that. It says in verse 22, But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. <laughs> reward him after all this bad behavior. This isn't tough love, man. This is something else. He's squandered all these goods. Now he's getting the royal treatment coming home. And I believe in some of those people that day there was ringing that prophetic background of what Malachi had spoken. The hearts of the fathers are going to be turned to the children and then the hearts of the children are going to be turned to the fathers. The father doesn't stop with just putting on the robe and the ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. In verse 23 he says, Bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Why? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now the rest of this story is not quite as much fun. Because it's about the older brother. In fact, the older brother in this story really is the Pharisees. If you check back at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees and scribes. And to whoever else as Jewish people are listening, of course. The older brother has now seen his younger brother take part of his goods. (laughs) He's supposed to get two-thirds. The younger brother's supposed to get one-third. Dad has already given the younger brother half. He's blowing it on harlots and, and riotous living. Now he comes back and dad's throwing all this favor and all this lavish love on him. That's just too much. He's out in the field. He's pouting. He's gone. And dad goes out with the same love. Get this, please. The same love that he was projecting to the prodigal son, he went out with that same love into the field to the older brother in the remainder of this story. But the older brother did not accept the love. He rejected it and pushed it away. And the story ends that way. We we don't know how it is with the older brother. We just know that the prodigal has come home. I want to try to help you understand this parable of the prodigal son tonight and the prophecy of Malachi. And I'm going to be quite transparent with you tonight. I hope that's okay. Uh, Some of the facts, all of the facts and the details I'm telling you here tonight, I'm telling with the full permission of the people who were involved, namely our sons. And uh, it starts like this. 
<laughs> after being Pharisees ourselves, my wife and I, God rescued us from that. We told you about that a few nights ago here. And uh, as Pharisees, uh, we were good parents to our boys. We were just pretty legalistic. You know, there, there's a law, there's a rule, you're going to obey it. If you don't obey it, you're going to get your little, you know what, burned. <laughs> and, uh, or punished some other way and whatever, you know. And I still believe in disciplining children, but friends, uh, something has changed in my heart. And there are some of you here tonight that have prodigal children, and I want to just try to get you to see something th through a different lens tonight. The lens of these verses that we've read in the scripture. Because you're waiting for the prodigal to change. And I'm telling you tonight, God wants you to change first. You say, preacher, you can't say that. That prodigal is out there getting drunk. That prodigal is teaching drugs. I know, I've done that thing with the prodigals, you know. <clears throat> that vein standing out of the neck, you know, and all that. And the prodigal is out there in the far country. That's why they are a prodigal. And you know what? The prodigals that are out, are out there are getting pig stuff all over them every day that they're out there. And you know what? When they come home, can I tell you from personal experience, when they come home from the pig pen, they stink. I'm just being transparent with you here tonight. But friend, I'm telling you that if a change is made in your heart for unconditional love, unconditional mercy, where you begin to say to the Lord, that chorus we sang, we sang that one on purpose, by the way. It was a setup tonight. <laughs> Sorry to have to tell you that. Change my heart, O Lord. The hearts of the fathers and the hearts of the mothers being changed first. Then the prodigal's hearts being changed. That's how it worked with us. And the more I began to study this in the Bible, the more I began to see... All that was really happening is the Holy Spirit was just conducting us along a pattern that we didn't even know before. It's all there in the Word. I just started reading these passages. I'm going, oh man, look at this. It's incredible. We founded this ministry in the year 2000. God was strongly impressing on us to call it Heart of the Father Ministries. As Sherry and I talked about this, we're like, how can we found a ministry called Heart of the Father Ministries when of our four sons, three are prodigals? Okay, we're not talking minor league prodigals here, okay? We're talking major league. We're talking drugs, jail, alcohol, parties, promiscuous sex, live-in situations. We're talking the whole shot that's out there in the pig pen, okay? How can we found a ministry called Heart of the Father Ministries? We cried out to God, and this is what he said. He said, if you will learn how to love them unconditionally, and if you will take this truth to the nation and to the world, I will bring them in. We said, Father, you really mean that? And we really prayed on it, and it really seemed like he was. And we said, all right, we'll do it. And by faith, with three out of four sons out there in the far country, we started Heart of the Father Ministries. That wasn't easy. Because I really believe in, in integrity at every level of what you do. And, and I don't believe that was a lack of integrity, but it, it was, certainly was a step of faith for us. And what happened shortly after all of that got resolved is our youngest son, Dan, went to a youth camp in Alexandria, Minnesota, it was an especially powerful youth camp. At the end of those services, those kids were going to the altar. They were, they were entering intercessory prayer. I mean, for sometimes for hours, they were groaning and travailing for their schools, for their families, and just God was just moving powerfully in that place. On one of those times, at the end of the prayer, our son Dan, our youngest son, who was never really strayed away from the Lord, he stood up and some of his friends heard him prophesy this statement over our family. He said, 
I've just had a vision. I've seen myself with my brothers standing in the house of God praising him. He said, it's going to happen. We're going to stand in the house of God. We're going to have our hands raised, praising God together. And then he said, they're going to come in from the youngest to the oldest. Now, we would have never known he prophesied that except one of his buddies told us. You know, you parents will understand that. <laughs> a few days later, we found out about it. And Dan did tell us about it later. And we're like, whoa, God has spoken. I mean, we're like, wow, this is cool. Within a few weeks of that, our third son, Samuel who had been to jail, who was on drugs, he was on alcohol, he was hooked on both of those, he just uh, all kinds of connections with that, he actually was selling drugs, we didn't even know how much his life was in danger at that point. A whole four year process with him was coming to a culmination in, in the year 2000. And when Daniel prophesied that, he loosed something in the spirit realm. And when we as the parents, the leaders of the family, accepted it and approved that word, and, and we also agreed with its power, something happened, something cracked open in our family. And within a couple of weeks, I'll just give you the short version of this story with Sam. This guy, he's an athlete, he's a baseball player, a football player, uh, when you put food on the table, take your hands away fast, okay? Because you don't want to be missing fingers. That's kind of how it is, you know? That's Sam. And uh, Sherry and I took him to a Perkins to eat on July 29th of 2000. It was a Saturday. He was so under conviction. This is a culmination of this four-year process. God had given me a vision. There were some things in obedience I had to do. There's some things that he, that he did. He didn't un, uh, even realize what he was doing in doing those uh, in obedience to me as his father because he wasn't living at home. And on this night, we're sitting in this Perkins, and Sam is so deep under conviction, he can't even eat. I mean, now, now that is miraculous. <laughs> okay, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. And I'm saying, here's some big plate of food in front of him saying, have something to eat. He goes and looks out the window for a while. And we're not like doing the religious thing on him. You bad boy, you know. What party were you at last night? You know, We weren't doing any of that stuff. We're just sitting there loving on him. Just trying to get into his life. Just trying to be there with him. He comes back. He sits down for a little while. Takes a couple of bites. And... In the middle of that, uh, he gets up and he goes to the bathroom. He just cannot eat. His mind is, is totally preoccupied. In the middle of this meal, he hauls out this piece of paper and he says, Here, read this. My son, the jock, the athlete, now is writing poetry. <laughs> this is new. <laughs> Never saw a line of poetry out of this boy before. I read this poem, it's a beautiful poem, but it's very dark. The whole cast of the poem is very dark. It's talking about how dark it is inside of him and where he lives and all this and fear and dread and all this stuff he's got. And I'm like, whoa. But it's an expression of where he was right then at that moment. And then at the end of our time in that restaurant, Sam looked at me and he said, Dad, where are you preaching tomorrow? Now, I had gone to him many times, Pastor Mark, if you wouldn't mind. <clears throat> I had gone to my son Sam many times, and I had said, Son, <clears throat> your famous father preacher is going to be uh, preaching at XYZ Assembly of God. Sure would be nice if you would be there. And, and he always said, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of how it was. This time he asked, my heart was changing first. I was his dad. Now he asked, and I said, well, it's going to be at uh, Praise Christian Center out in Crystal. And he said, I'll be there. And so we told him how to get there. And lo and behold, that morning, he showed up and sat with Sherry in the congregation. I mean, my eyes were big. I mean, I'm up on the platform. I'm, hmm, Sam's here. 
I didn't do anything uh, different because Sam was there. I preached the message God gave me and dozens of people came up to that altar that day when I gave the altar call, but my eyes were on one, <laughs> Sam, who just started walking down that altar and he was weeping and he was crying and he knelt at that altar and he repented of his sins. And he called on Jesus. And he wept his way back into the arms of his heavenly father. That's the most important. But his earthly father, me, I, I happened to be there that day. <laughs> that was really a good day. It was awesome. Amazing thing happened to Sam that night. We went to our home church in Maplewood, Minnesota. I'm almost never there. I'm a really bad church member, Pastor, because I'm always out doing this, you know. But we went to our home church. And in that service that night at our home church, Sam had a vision of himself with a ball and chain around his leg and with it just being smashed off and put behind him. And in that moment in time, he was instantaneously delivered of drugs, alcohol, and smoking. Just in a moment in time, all three of those just gone off of his life. We were just, I mean, we were ecstatic. We're praising God. Awesome. He started going to work. Uh, he'd go out. His, his car out in the parking lot used to be the gathering place because he had the stuff, you know. So, you know, you bring your money, you get your stuff, and on break, you get high. It's the way it works. Well, his car was still the gathering place now, except he's sitting behind the wheel with all the windows down reading Scripture. <laughs> And these guys are still coming. They're, they're just gathering around his car. Whoa, Sam's reading the Bible. Let's listen. <laughs> it was awesome. It was incredible. There was a power encounter there one day with a warlock that was working there in that plant that Sam was working. This guy was actually creeping up behind the car. Sam's got this crowd of guys. They're sitting on the hood. They're sitting down on the pavement. Sam's reading, you know, uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You know, Scripture's coming out. And some of the guys that were at the back of the car literally saw the power of the Word of God drive this warlock down and back behind the car and, and immobilize him. That was pretty cool. You know, I mean, he was coming to bust it all up, but God's power just overcame him. It was awesome. So we're praising God. Oh man, our number three son is in. Praise the Lord. And then we remember Daniel prophesied they're going to come in from the youngest to the oldest. We say, it's happening! Oh man! The prodigals are coming home. Well, I'm going to bring uh, Sherry up here. I forgot to warn you, we're doing tag team preaching here tonight. So, uh, tag here. Ready? Alright. <laughs> She's going to tell you the story of Nathan. Well, praise God. We were so excited about Sam coming back to the Lord and and, yeah, we wondered, okay, so when's Nathan going to come in? Or is he going to be next? You know, like the prophecy went. And two years went by. And during this time, we, we could sense a change in Nate. Now, he wasn't as out there like, like Sam and, and his older brother, Joel. He was more complacent, um, just kind of apathetic towards church, didn't come anymore to church. Now, he would entertain with the parties he'd He'd get drunk once in a while, that kind of thing, but he wasn't hooked on anything like that. He's just disinterested in the things of the Lord. How many know that that's just as much a sinner as the one who's out there really doing the bad stuff? So um, he was getting tired of living in this one house where he was staying with some friends because they smoked all the time, and he didn't smoke, and he was getting sick of the smoke. And so with us traveling so much, he started asking if he could stay at our house. When we'd be gone, he'd sleep in our bed. And then we'd call and check on him and go, oh, it's so good. I don't have any of that smoke here. But we could also sense that he just liked to hang out there. And I think he sensed the love of God in that home. And uh, he started talking like he wanted to move out of this house, but he didn't really have anywhere to go. Um, his two best friends were married now and, and just didn't know what to do. So Dave started talking to him about possibly moving home with us for a while. I mean, he was 24, but that would be okay. It would be transition time until he found something better. He could at least, you know, be in this atmosphere away from the smoke, whatever. And pretty soon he said, you know, I think I'm going to take you up on that. And so we made a room for him. 
And a friend of ours said, hey, how long can Nate be at your house and not come back to the Lord? And that's kind of what we were thinking. We're like, you know, I think this is part of his journey back to God. And not too long after he had moved in, we were having a family prayer meeting. And we said, Nate, would you like to join us for the family prayer meeting? And he said, oh, sure. So he came on in and we were praying and asking for prayer requests. And he had a back problem. And, and so when Dave got to Nate, he was just praying over Nate. And all of a sudden, he just broke. He turned and he wept and he said, I love you guys and I love what you're doing. And we knew that that was his breakthrough, that his moment of breakthrough. And not too long after that, I was um, home while Dave was traveling. I also take care of the office, so sometimes I stay back and do that. And Nate came to church with me. And I just remember how he, he responded to the altar call. I, I forget what it was about. I think it was baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I just you know asked him if he wanted to go forward, and he did. And that was kind of like his public confession, I would say. And when Pastor Mike, our home pastor, prayed over him, he just wept and wept and wept. And he came back and he said, Mom, I just can't stop weeping. Like he didn't know what God was all doing in his heart, but I knew he was changing. That fall is when I went to India the first time in 2002. And Nathan came to my office desk and he said, Mom, I just feel God has laid it on my heart to give this amount of money towards your trip. Now to me, that meant something very special because Nate's always been very conscious of where his money goes and everything and and I just said thank you Jesus well all of this time we're going what about Joel Joel's the big fish Joel's our oldest son and I told you the other night that he's like my sandpaper child if I said yes he said no if I said no he said yes I mean just couldn't agree on anything it seemed like it didn't happen for a long time as you just heard Dave say first it was Sam in the year 2000 then it was Nate in 2002 and so we're still waiting for Joel. You know, oh, how long can it take, Lord? And I started to see how he was changing his attitude towards me. I'd give him a hug and he'd just melt in my arms, for example. Whereas before it was like just friction, friction, friction. And so I knew that God was changing his heart. There'd be times when I'd be on the phone and he wouldn't hang up until he'd say, I love you, Mom. And then there'd be times when he'd happen to be at the house when uh, we wanted everybody to pray for us before we left on a journey to you know, minister. And one of those times he was there and he was the one that let out in prayer first. Just beautiful prayer. And afterwards, Dave and I are just like, okay. It's almost like he's never left the Lord because of how he prayed and yet we knew he hadn't totally changed yet because of his lifestyle and things like that. So we just had to hang on to that promise that he was going to come back. He was having a fear when he'd get in his car. He gets in his car to go to work and he can't go down the highway because he has this fear of death coming at him. And so it was just like, oh, this is so strange. Well, one of those days when he was just really sick and miserable, he called up and talked to Dave and he said, Dad, I'm going to die. I just feel like I'm going to die. And Dave said, no, you're not going to die. We'll come out to your house and we'll pray for you tonight. So we went out to his house. They're about 50 miles from where we live he and Nate, and um, had a good dinner together and things like that, and pretty soon his brother Nate had to get to bed because he gets up really early, and so just three of us sitting there. And God had been dealing with Dave for a long time to keep a list of things that, um, that God would bring to his mind where he needed to ask his son forgiveness. And he had done this with our other boys, but with Joel, Joel had not been ready. He had tried it one time, and Joel just said, you know, I just can't go there right now. And so Dave just kept praying on this list, you know, when do you want us to do this? And he felt like this might be the night. And so he asked Joel, when the three of us were sitting there, he said, you know, I have this list with me, and, and would you be good with, with my asking you forgiveness of some things that have happened and, um, between Joel and Dave? And he sat there for quite a while and didn't want to answer at first. But finally he said, okay. And so they went through some things. Just things, sometimes it was hard for Joel because it was babyhood and toddlerhood where he didn't even remember the things. And then other things he could remember. And, and so he took it very seriously. And I thought, oh, wow, this is really good, Lord. You know, I'm sitting there praying. And he gets to the end of the list. And then as he promised Joel that he would pray for him, he prayed over him that God would heal him. 
And when he got done praying, he asked me to pray, so I came over and prayed Father's love into him. And when I got done praying, he said, well, Joel, would you like to pray? Because we've heard him pray. And I don't know, I thought he might pray for some person that was important in his life. And out comes his prayer. Father, please forgive me for my sins. Please cleanse my heart. Please cleanse my heart. And I'm just like, did you hear that? Is that what he said? Is that what he really said? <laughs> I mean, it was just such a shock. I mean, neither one of us expected it. I guess we kind of did because we felt like this was going to be a turning point for him. But voluntarily, without us saying, well, Joel, wouldn't you like to invite Christ back into your life? It wasn't anything like that. He just, you could tell that he had already been thinking about this and God had already been dealing with him to confess his sins and to get cleaned up. And so we went away rejoicing. And I'll let Dave finish the rest of the story. I know all of you here that have more than one child understand that your children are individuals. And uh, I really, really just want to minister along this line of prodigals. If, if you don't have a prodigal child, you certainly have a prodigal relative, a prodigal friend, a person that needs you to change first so that the love and the power of God can flow through you into them. Now that's, of course, what God was doing in my heart. Joel prayed to receive the Lord into his life. This was last November 10th. And we expected the same thing that happened with Sam to happen with him. Because he was hooked on alcohol, he was hooked on cigarettes. Some real life controlling problems. It didn't happen that way with Joel. With Joel, we entered into a battle and into a war. We're still fighting right now some of the final skirmishes as we're coming into complete victory almost a year later. And I want to just tell you about a couple of those tonight. I think it'll help you understand some things. You, you think you know why your prodigal is the way they are. And you probably don't. And I want to tell you why I say that tonight. Joel prayed, as Sherry described here on November 10th. I left and went to India and had an incredible time over there. I came back. It was almost like Joel was where I left him. It was almost like he was on hold. And a tremendous change had come to his life. But on December 19th last year, he was staying at our house for a few days. And at four in the afternoon on that day, he came walking up to me in my house. And he said, Dad, the left side of my face is going numb and my right arm is going numb. Do something about it. Now, he had just been through a complete medical physical checkup and there was absolutely nothing wrong with him. I grabbed him in my arms, and he grabbed me, and I just began pouring Father's love into him. For 25 minutes, I just held him standing there in the kitchen. And at the end of that 25 minutes, my son went delirious in my arms. The things that were in him couldn't stand the presence of Father's love. Let's just speak plainly here tonight, okay? The demon spirits that were inside of him couldn't stand it, and he went delirious. He couldn't speak a whole coherent sentence. I let go of him. He started staggering around the room, knocking over furniture like a drunk person. So I walked over to where he was, and I got a hold of him, and I picked him up, and I carried him like I did when he was a little boy. He was 27 years old, and I carried him. And I put him on the bed in the room where he was staying. He's just gibbering out of his head. Mommy, daddy, just gibberish. And as I laid him on that bed, the thought went through my mind, maybe I should take him to the emergency room. And I remembered he had just had this complete checkup. And then this thought came in behind that thought that said, yeah, so they can shoot him full of drugs and delay inevitable. And as he was laying on that bed, I knelt down next to him and I, I just put my body over his, just chest to chest. And I just started calling on heaven. After several minutes, the Lord opened up this vision to me. I was desperate. 
He opened up this vision to me. I could see in the spirit. I could see this incredible battlefield scene. There were soldiers running and screaming, shooting their weapons and mortar rounds coming in. And it was just the chaos of the battlefield. But as I looked through this, I could see over to the other side to the horizon, there was a sunrise coming up. It was bright and it was getting brighter and brighter and brighter like the dawning of a new day. And I saw that if... If we could make it through this battlefield intact, we were going to get to the new day over there on the horizon. That's what the vision meant. I was greatly encouraged by that. I, I called out more on heaven. I, I really got vocal. Joel, he's just laying there in, in delirium and in, in, in gibberish. And the Lord showed me another thing that night that was really awesome. It was like straight over my head. I'm, I'm on my you know, my chest on him, on his chest, and straight over me from heaven comes this box. It's just a package that was wrapped. And it just hit me in the back and went into me. The moment that happened, I had a certainty. I had a faith that we were going to... I didn't care if this battle took days. I didn't care if it took weeks or months or years. I knew we were going to win. I had no doubt. Every doubt I had was, was vanished at that moment. I believe it was a gift of faith that God gave me for that situation and for that time. He let me see it as it came into me. In a few minutes, uh, Sherry came home. She had been out on an errand. And for the rest of the hours of that evening and on into the night, we alternated between staying in the room with Joel and the other one was out in the living room interceding and calling on God. We were not doing deliverance ministry to Joel. We weren't casting anything out of him, so to speak. We were just praying and just loving more of Father's love into him. But he was delirious for eight hours. And during that eight hours, seven times he got up and had to go to the toilet to get rid of things that were coming up out of him as he was being delivered supernaturally by the power of God. Dozens of things. You know what I'm talking about here tonight. Demonic spirits. We had no idea what he had opened himself up to. In a, in a four-plus-year uh, live-in lifestyle, uh, dabbling with occult practices, uh, drunken parties, and the whole thing. Seven times that night that happened with him, we, we just watched. I mean, we weren't, as I said, doing classic deliverance ministry to him at all. And then near midnight that night, we got our son back. And he could speak a coherent sentence once again. He came out of the delirium. I slept in that room with him on another bed all night that night. He wanted me to do that. And one part of me on the inside says, Oh, awesome, we've won. And yet within myself I knew we, were, we had won one battle and that we were in a war. We've had quite a few more of those since then. As this battle has marched through January, February, March, April, right on through the months of this year. And God has been setting him free. Hallelujah. A ways into this, uh, we decided to take Joel to some godly Christian counseling. I believe in counseling that allows the Holy Spirit to target the issues, counseling that focuses on Jesus. I'm not really into humanistic counseling very much. I'm sorry if you are. We'll just have to agree to disagree. Uh, but I am into the kind that gets us to Jesus and gets us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Joel went to several powerful sessions of this with a godly woman who was doing this counseling. And we found out some things. You think you know why your prodigal is out there in the far country. You think you know why the prodigal is the way they are, but you probably don't. Here's one of the things that came out as Joel went into one of these sessions. When he was five years old, we were pastoring a church in eastern Wisconsin. And uh, Joel was one day was standing out in front of the house, between the house and the sidewalk, and I was standing back in the house just watching him. I just happened to walk to the living room, and there he was standing. And I just stood there for a few minutes. 
There were sheer drapes on the window. There were screen windows on the porch. So my vision of him was not clear, but I could see his form. I could see his shape. And as I stood there and watched him, this girl came walking down the sidewalk, and Joel's arm came back in a throwing motion. Now, as Sherry said, we're already having these rebellion problems with him. I said to myself, oh my God, my son's throwing rocks at a girl. I've got to get out there. And his arm came down in the throwing motion. I ran out the front door, grabbed hold of him. You can't throw rocks. The girl ran away, of course. I said, you can't throw rocks at girls. He said, I wasn't throwing rocks at her. I said, you didn't know it, but I was watching you from behind inside the house and I saw you. Now you're lying to it. I'm not lying. And you parents know how things escalate. And pretty soon we were yelling and screaming. And then, under the authoritarian dad, the yelling and screaming gets settled by, your little bunners are going to get warm now, boy! And that's what happened. Well now, 22 years later, in this Holy Spirit-guided counseling session, we find out what really happened. And Joel came back to me to tell me about it. And we, got, we had some really good results out of that it seems like as he was standing there uh, with his left hand he was holding a bouquet of flowers and he was plucking the petals out of the flowers and was throwing the flower petals on the girl I didn't see that all I saw was a throwing motion that looked like he was hurting the girl and I went out there and and what happened in Joel that day as they dug into this further, what happened in him that day was something clicked, something just shifted and flipped over. He perceived me as his father. I was a pastor. I was a spiritual leader. I was all these things. He perceived me as perfect. And yet he knew what happened that day was not right. And inside him a switch was flipped that said, I can't do it right, so I'm just going to do whatever I want to do anyway because I'm going to get my buns burned anyway, so it doesn't matter, so here I go. And as we thought back over it, that's the time when his rebellion really took off. I had to ask him to forgive me for that. And you know what? He forgave me. (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There's a bunch of these I could tell you. I'm just going to tell you a few of these tonight. You think you know why your prodigal is the way they are, but you probably don't. So if you're going to make an error, make an error on the side of mercy. We're in the gospel now. We're not in the law anymore. The the law was for the Old Testament. The law was fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, please. And now we're living in the gospel, the age of grace, the age of mercy. There's a teaching that has been brought forth in the Christian realm in our nation. It's been out for some time now. It's called Tough Love. And I think I understand what the people that are teaching it are trying to accomplish. And I I certainly believe in discipline. I certainly believe in boundaries, but I'm afraid that what has happened in evangelical Christianity in the last 20 years is we've used tough love as an excuse for conditional love. Many of us, I certainly did. I read that book and I said, Aha! That's what my boy needs. He needs tough love. Well, I want to tell you what tough love did with my oldest son. Actually, all three of those. It just pushed them farther and farther and farther away. You see, what your children need, friend, what any prodigal needs is expressed love. That's the kind of love they need. We've had enough of people telling us they love us. I love you. Thank you very much. I love you too. It's nice. You're nice. I'm nice. Oh, we're very loving. We're we're telling it with words. There's a whole bunch of hurting children and hurting teenagers and hurting young adults that are waiting for those words to be backed up with action. And I want to delve into this a little deeper here tonight because the story of our oldest son is it just brings to me so many principles out of this parable of the prodigal son 
Another thing that came out in, in the counseling there as this lady took him through these things was we could never understand why he was so out of control. As Sherry said, his motto was when he got his driver's license, his motto was this, you got to get sideways. That's a combination of steering and acceleration that moves the car down the road like this. It's quite terrifying to oncoming drivers. Uh, it's really fun for the high school kids in the back seat. <laughs> you know? And that, that's how Joel drove. <clears throat> but everything he did with any kind of engine, any kind of dirt bike, snowmobile, anything, it's constant wide open. You've got to be flying through the air. You've got to be throwing dirt. You gotta, your life has got to be on the line, like to the point of out of control. We could never understand that. And then this part of his life was unearthed that Sherry and I had no clue of. When he was nine years old, we were attending family camp at Spencer Lake, Wisconsin, there where, where we were pastoring. And uh, the family camp was going on, everybody was doing activities, and one day Joel wandered out in the woods behind the, the buildings, and he was back there, and there was this adult man back there with this powerful dirt bike, a big one, just ripping around, ripping up the dirt and everything, having a great time. And he came up to Joel with it, and he said, Hey, have you ever ridden one of these? And Joel, wanting to be macho and cool, said, Oh, yeah, man. And he never had. He'd never been on one a, a bike like that. And the guy put him on the bike and said, all right, take off. And Joel just hit that thing. And he went flying into bramble bushes, trees, everything else. Racked the bike up, racked himself up. We, we were wondering why he was racked up. He lied about that. How did this happen? I tumbled down a hill. Oh, okay. You know. I mean, and we believed that. <laughs> he wrecked the bike, wrecked himself. And at that moment, out of control entered into him. I wish I could tell you I fully rationally understand that. I don't. But as this godly woman began to minister to Joel and made out of control come out of Joel, Joel has gotten back into control of himself. It's an amazing thing. You think you know why your prodigal is the way they are, but you probably don't. That's why you've got to err on the side of mercy, and that's why expressed love is always the right answer. Expressed love sometimes is taking them in your arms and holding them if they'll allow you to do that. There's been an amazing piece of research that's been done by the University of Minnesota. It was done in, in these northern states here, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, Illinois, Iowa, this, this whole tier of states in this part of our country. And in this study, this is what they found out. Between 50 and 60% of children as they're being raised in their household over the last number of decades, between 50 and 60% of them were never ever once held in the arms of their father. Not one time. It's been going on for decades now. That's why expressed love is so important. Let me tell you another form that expressed love took, and I'll close with this. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's starting to close. Go ahead, tell your neighbor. They'll be encouraged. We're trying to help you understand the parable of the prodigal son here tonight. As Sherry told you, Joel and Nate bought this farm. As Joel started entering into these consequences of this, of giving his life over to the Lord and all of this trauma and, and getting rid of these things and getting out of alcoholism and, and the, the abuse of his body and all these things that had been done, he lost his job. His employer was very patient with him, he, way more than I, than I thought he would be. But there came the day Joel just wasn't showing up. He was so depressed he couldn't work. It was classic depression. And so he lost his job. He had no means of income. Tough love says, make them face up to the consequences of their actions, draw the boundaries and make it clear, and then whatever happens, happens. Unconditional love says, express love even when it costs. And some of you men here tonight are saying, oh no, he's going to start talking about money. 
with kids. Yep, I'm going to right now, guys. I made my son's house payment for eight out of those first nine months of this last year. My son, my oldest son, has been totally irresponsible with his money his whole life. You say, boy, you are a fool. I am. I'm a loving fool. <laughs> Not only that, uh, my son drives an SUV that's way better than mine. I've got a 91 Ram Charger that I go you know, out on lakes and stuff with. It's a great old beater. He's got a way better one than mine. He's got payments. I don't. I made his truck payment for eight out of those nine months this last year, too. I say, boy, that's pretty foolish. Yep, it's foolish love. It's expressed love. And you know what we found out somewhere along about last, I think it was August, maybe into September? We found out in this financially irresponsible son of ours, as we just kept pouring out love and mercy, kept loving on him in tangible ways. Yes, we told him we loved him, but then we took actions with it. Seemed foolish to everything I'd ever been taught, everything I'd read in books. We found out that there was a real love that was really starting to come back our way from him. And underneath all of that, we found a businessman in there. It was an amazing thing. Never knew it was there. And now he has established a business there on that farm they bought, and he's starting to earn money. He doesn't have a job per se. He gets cars that uh, people don't want anymore, and he fixes them up and sells them for $800,000, $1,200, and he's, he's making money. It's an amazing thing. We'd have never known that was there under the old regime of you better toe the line boy now I'm not telling you here tonight that the answer to all your problems is to go out and throw thousands of dollars at your prodigal okay what I am telling you to do here tonight is find a way to express love from a changed heart get your heart changed get it really changed first you can't fake this you, you can't do the religious thing with this I'm sorry it just won't work there's no way. But when you come to God and you really want to change and you really want to hear what Scripture says about this, the hearts of the fathers are turned to the children and then the hearts of the children are turned to the fathers. He's faithful and he'll do it. And he'll do it with mothers too. He's really an amazing father. <laughs> father God is. He'll do it with mothers. He'll do it with other relatives. He'll do it with prodigals of every kind. He's looking for people who are willing to change. That's what he really wants. So I just want to ask you to stand up together here tonight. I'm telling you tonight that the prodigals are coming home. I believe that the next move of God that is coming to our nation is going to be a culmination of what he has started now in cleansing this Pharisee syndrome out of his church. The legalism and the consequences and you, you better shape up and all that kind of stuff. Love is coming back into the house again. How many are happy about that, by the way? Love is coming in the house. But I believe the next wave of what is going to happen and what God is doing is the prodigals are going to come home. There are prodigals all over this city. They knew God at one time. They walked with Him. They went to church. They served God. They worshipped Him. And they're gone. It's true in every city in America right now. But I'm here with some good news tonight. Expressed love is going to bring them back. And they're going to come all the way back. But I have to ask a question right now. As we just stand here in the presence of the living God. I want to ask first, if you've heard this tonight, and as you've heard what we've said here, and you've heard these scriptures and this, this explanation of it, you understand that you are a prodigal tonight. You understand that you are away from God. Friend, there's only one thing for you to do. Recognize where you are and where you have to come back to. 
put yourself in the parable of the prodigal son and realize that from the place you are, you've got to get back to Father's house. And if Father is wanting you to repent, he's wanting you to come with a, with a heart to ask for forgiveness, but also remember from that parable, he's going to run to meet you. He's not going to stand there watching you out the window and say, I hope he makes it. I hope she somehow gets here. He's going to run to meet you. That's the kind of father he is. Because he loves you. So I just want to ask first tonight, I just feel impressed to do it this way. I'm not going to ask you to raise the hands and all that. I want to just ask you if you've understood tonight that you're a prodigal. You're away from God. You knew him at one time. And you want to come all the way back into Father's house. I want you to just step out from where you are and come on down here to the front tonight and be included in a time of prayer that we're going to do here in just a moment. I just want to open up this altar for that right now. Anybody through this time, as these words have gone forth, you understand you're a prodigal son, you're a prodigal daughter. Whatever your age is, from 8 to 80, it doesn't matter. Whether your parents are still living or whether they're not, that doesn't matter. You understand this tonight and you want to come all the way back into Father's love. I want to just ask you to step out from where you are and come on down here to the front. I'm telling you, he'll forgive you. He'll put the robe on you. He'll put the ring on your finger. And he'll call for the servants to kill the fatted calf because this is what he's going to say. My son, my daughter that was dead is alive. You see, you come to life when you do this, when you repent and you call on the name of the Lord and you say, Jesus, I accept the sacrifice that you made for my sins. And then he transforms you and changes you on the inside and he gives you a new life. Pastor, why don't you lead us in this song that you're playing here. We're just going to wait on you a moment here. If you need this tonight, I just want to invite you in love. I want to invite you in mercy to just come on down here to the front and stand down here in just a little while. We're going to pray with you. We trust this message has been a blessing to your spiritual life. You can contact us with any correspondence or donations for the support of this ministry at Heart of the Father Ministries, P.O. Box 300, Rush City, Minnesota. 55069 or visit us online at heartofthefather.net where you can purchase all of our products or donate online as well. Kingdom blessings on you.